This is Jim Harmer, and you're listening to the Improve Photography Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Canon. Join Canon to learn from some of the best portrait photographers in a city near you. Canon's tour showcases six different photographers, each with a distinctive style in six different cities across the country. Spend a day with an award-winning Canon Explorer of Light and learn their portrait photography secrets. Each event covers different facets of portrait photography, including family, wedding, wedding, fashion, and commercial portraits. Register now or learn more at canon.us slash learn portraits. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Improved Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Harmer, and today I'm joined by two of the writers on the Improved Photography website, Kirk Bergman, who is a real estate photographer and a landscape photographer in Utah, and Julian Baird, a landscape photographer from the UK. Hey, guys. Hey, Jim. Hey there. Well, thanks for being on to talk about this. I'm glad to have you guys because both of uh, you guys shoot landscape photography in addition to other things. And so in our first segment today, we're going to talk about 10 tips for better landscape photography, just 10 things that have kind of uh, been our, on our minds and things that we're working on have been and have been helpful. And then after the break, we're going to talk about the dark side of the photography business, which is um, one of Kirk's art- articles that went up on the website this week and has been really popular. So we wanted to kind of discuss some of those things. So here we go. 10 tips for better landscape photography. I'm going to start us out um, uh, by saying when in doubt, go wider and and get closer to your subject. As I did portfolio reviews last week with Improved Photography Plus members, uh, they could just call in and I talked with them for like a whole day. Um, a couple things I kind of found myself saying over and over again about the landscapes. One, uh, we'll talk later about post-processing, but another one was um, just no no clear foreground. Uh, it's that's something that I've been talking about for years uh, as we as I look at landscapes is, People are too focused on the landscape itself, the wide vista landscape, uh, and they don't have that thing close to them. Uh, Or if they do, you know, they're they're still afraid to get right up next to it. And, uh, you know, I'm finding sometimes I'm literally five inches away from a flower in the foreground uh, or something like that. And, And it takes a while for landscape photographers to get used to that because you're thinking landscape and you're thinking really wide. Have you guys... Did, did it take you guys a while to figure that out as well? Yeah, for me, it did. Um, I, I, I've learned that there's four parts to a good landscape photo, and it's, it's foreground, midground, background, and sky. And if you ignore one of those parts, then you're going to be missing out on a crucial part of what could make that photo look really nice. Yeah, and I think I'll, I'll probably go the opposite way, actually. I mean, I actually, most of my landscape photographs were started off as being very wide and having, having close subjects. I actually discovered that. I became a better landscape photographer when I started using longer focal lengths. So when I bought a 24 to 70 and eventually a 70 to 200, that they, um, those kind of focal lengths really expanded my horizons rather than just doing the traditional set at a 16 and shoot wide. So I think it's important to cover all, all the focal lengths um, to help yourself improve. Uh, that's a good point, Julian. Uh, there's, you know, there's not there's not obviously one focal length or one way to shoot. Uh, and you know, we see all kinds of long lens landscapes that are very successful. We see some photos that are just a background, like an aerial drone photo that can be really, really successful. But so often when I'm seeing a, a landscape, that's just 
kind of boring. Like it's just not quite there. Uh, often I find just get closer and wider to, uh, to that foreground and it's, it's a good cheater to get you to the next level on that. Yeah, uh, uh, absolutely. Um, so the one I'd like to suggest is I think, and, and people probably don't do this enough anymore, is actually to read uh, books on landscape photography. So, I mean, we all look at Facebook and we look at Instagram, but, you know, we kind of scroll through that quite quickly. I mean, if your Facebook feeds anything like mine, you just kind of scroll through and you might see something and you go, yeah, that's quite nice. And then you carry on scrolling. I think the thing with books, uh, sort of real print books, is that you actually take the time to look at the photographs. Um, I've, one of the books I, I like reading is I like reading Landscape Photographer of the Year book. I get that every year. I, Who's, I really like, what organization is that from? So that's um, that's Take a View. That's a, it's a UK-based um, landscape photography competition. Okay, I hadn't heard of that. That's probably why. Yeah, it's, it's, it's huge here. I mean, it gets tens of thousands of, of entries. Um, there is an equivalent in the, in the United States now. It's called Landscape Photography of the Year USA, I think it's called. Um, but it produces a, a high-quality photo book every year with um, both you know, the winners and, and the highly commended images. And I find actually having a book and sitting down and reading it and actually looking at the images and trying to understand why is that image a good image? Why is it in the book? I mean, obviously competitions can be quite subjective, but I think by looking at other people's works um, and, and trying to understand how and why they composed images in a certain way, it certainly enabled me to go out there and, and try and take pictures uh, of a similar quality. So I always find that quite inspiring. Yeah. I'm with Julian, 100% on that one. One book that I like to read a lot, or a magazine that I like to read is The Outdoor Photographer. And it lets the photographer explain their process of why they took that shot, why they go through it. Um, I mean, I'm on Facebook, I'm subscribed to the, the world-class landscape photographers. Um, but it seems like, just like Julian said, you just scroll through those in a matter of seconds and you blast through them. You don't take much time to really get to know the photo. But when you have it in print right in front of you and you're reading about it, then I think that really helps you understand the photo a lot more. Yeah, boy, yeah, sitting down and really analyzing a photo is such a helpful exercise. And so when you said books, Julian, I was I was interested because I've bought several, a lot of landscape photography books and they, the teaching, the text was just, I don't know, it's just, you know, just kind of the same boring information. Kind of we've heard this a hundred times if you've been around photography for a while. And so I, I was curious what books you find. But yeah, looking at, a, at a, you know, print books, uh, photos of, you know, books of photos. Uh, that's, that's a great idea. I should get some. Yeah, it's great. I sit down, have a cup of coffee and, you know, take 10 minutes out of your busy life. That's right. Yep. All right. Uh, my tip, the first one that came to my mind when I thought of the tips for better landscape photography was to print your work. I noticed a significant improvement in how I processed and how I shot and, and just the, the clarity and the contrast and saturation, everything that I put into a landscape photo once I started printing those. Um, how it looks on your screen is uh, completely different than how it looks on paper. And if you just look at photos on your screen, but never actually take them into the real world, then you have a hard time understanding how to make that photo look really good. Um, when I first started shooting landscape photography, I thought I was doing a pretty good job. I submitted a few pictures into the, um, into the state fair. And I honestly thought I was going to get a blue ribbon on some of my shots because they were that good. 
um, once I printed them and then they were hanging up on the wall and I was looking at them, comparing them to some of the others, it, they were dark. They were kind of just unsaturated. There wasn't a lot of clarity. It just was, it just looked bland. And it was because that I printed it, I was able to find those uh, that I was lacking in my post-processing and then I could change how I was processing, how I was shooting as well uh, to make for better photos. Yeah, I found once I got a setup that I could print at home uh, and I don't have a great printer. It's just the Pixma Pro 100, you know, that one that keeps going on sale about once a year for a hundred bucks. Um, and, uh, and they mostly just want you to buy ink for it. Uh, it's once I got that at home, I print 10 times more than I ever have. Uh, when it was, when before I, my only option was to, was to order a print. I just, just didn't, unless I had some specific need for that print. Yeah, I'm the same. I, I just picked up the Pixma Pro 10s um, back in March, also on, on special offer. But certainly, since I've got my printer at home, I do find myself printing a lot more. And I think it's important to to live with your work as well, because we all spend you know a bit of time on the computer. We post process our images, share them in social networks, and then they kind of, for the most part, often disappear into a digital archive. Uh, and I, I've got a fairly simple setup uh, in my office where I print the pictures off and I put them up on the wall. But I find myself looking at those images a lot more. You know, when I come into the room, I see them and I look at them. I've started spotting, uh, you know, problems with my pictures, but also things that um, I like about my pictures as well. So um, I'm finding it's really helping me um, sort of develop as a, a landscape photographer. Cool. My next one is develop a solid post-processing routine. You know, there are so many different techniques you can learn in uh, in post-processing landscapes. I mean, there's, there is no one killer way to do this. Um, every, every couple of years, we'll get something. It used to be the HDR, and now people are really into the luminosity masking, whatever, and it will feel like, ah, that's how you post-process a good landscape. There are a hundred different approaches to do it that a hundred excellent uh, landscape photographers will use and none of them are really wrong they're just different approaches to doing it however it's difficult to get to that point where you can just solidly pulse process a, a landscape every single time and get that professional look and that professional flair to the photo. And I think a lot of people maybe stop short of that, uh, you know, where they can, you know, do some things in Lightroom and, you know, they're doing stuff, but it's either oversaturated or they just get weird. I don't know how else to explain it, but I saw this several times in the in the portfolio reviews recently this like a yellow sky will just turn to this like grungy charcoal look to it have you guys seen that do you know what i'm talking about i i haven't seen that i should post no, I uh i should post a photo in the facebook because i see this all the time uh from photographers who are still kind of working on the post-processing and that sky just gets grungy nasty charcoal look into it um uh, just by i you know just sliding sliders everywhere and not really having a direction that the photo is going mm. and uh it, it can just do some weird things so probably the least fun part of photography or the least fun thing to learn in photography is post-processing because you got to sit at a computer and you got to watch a you know, screen recording on improved photography plus <laughs> and you got to just watch somebody watch somebody's computer screen for an hour um, and it's just not fun but boy can that really take your your photos further it's uh it's rare that i don't see 
or it's rare that I see a, a photographer whose post-processing is ahead of the in-camera stuff. Often it's it's the other way around. The end camera's doing well and it's the post-processing that, that could use a little bit of work. So take yeah, that time um, and do it. It's totally worth it. Yeah, and what I would add to that about also developing that solid processing routine is once you've done your image, leave it for a couple of days and then come back and look at it again. Because I've, I found that I never, pub, I never edit an image, then publish it. Always leave it a couple of days, come back to it, have another look at it. Because most of the time, I've done not not quite to the same extreme as that you were describing, but I'll, I'll find that I've maybe overbaked the sky, or I've, I've done something. And I need to tune things down a bit because you can get quite excited with the sliders when you first get an image, particularly if there's a, a good sunset. You'd be dragging all the sliders about, going, "Oh, isn't it? Isn't this great?" So leave it a couple of days after you've edited it. Come back, look at it with a fresh pair of eyes. Yeah, you've got to give your eyes a rest. Um, I've noticed that a ton, and especially the real estate work that I do is I'll edit, I'll go through the whole thing and edit uh, the whole slide reel, and then I'll have to get up and go do something for 15, 20 minutes, then come back and then make other adjustments because either the white balance is off or because I've, I've added too much contrast or too much clarity or whatever. Um, and yeah, that's super important with landscape, especially if you're going to print it and hang it on your wall. You want it to be perfect. And you're excited once you get it finished, just right then, and you want to send it off to the printer immediately. But if you wait a couple of days, then come back, you can make huge improvements to what you what your initial edit was. Yeah. So, Kirk, I know you've you've been doing a lot of stuff with uh, with art fairs. I see on your Facebook all the time. You're at art fairs and and uh, and out there, kind of putting your your prints out there. How how has that gone for you? Uh, you know, it, one are they selling? Is it something that's encouraging you to for people to see the work, or what's that like? Um, well, I haven't entered so many fairs. Uh, Not necessarily. Far fairs. Uh, the the you know the, the the art shows yeah the art shows sorry oh that that's uh that's nathan you're thinking about he's the one that that does that oh yeah 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 you're right he is always doing that i forgot yeah, about that but but uh yeah i need to scratch his brain on that because that's something that i actually want to be doing is enter more art shows and art fairs um but the next thing that i was going to mention was to enter those art fairs that are actually uh that are that are judged competitions like the state fair. Uh, that was the very first one that I've entered. Um, and it's, it's just helpful to see your work compared to others, pe other people's work, because you are all in the same category. So you submit your photos in the landscape category for the amateur skill level or whatever. Um, and then you can see your work right next to everybody else's and you can compare what yours looks like versus theirs. And you can make huge strides just based off what you see in what other people are doing, how they're shooting, what focal lengths they're using, how they're processing, what they're printing on. Um, and then getting that constructive criticism back, most fairs will offer like a, a sit down opportunity with the judge where they will go over the photos and tell you what they liked or what they didn't like about them. Um, and then you can work your, work your way up to uh, a ribbon and that honestly, I've gotten a couple of ribbons at state fairs and it feels really good to see a blue ribbon right next to your photo uh, when you beat out everybody else. Yeah, that's awesome. I, yeah, that's awesome. 
um, yeah, another so one for me yeah. is um, well, it, kind of the the three cheaters uh, to any landscape is location, weather, and light. Uh, light, you know, is difficult, more difficult uh, to do because often you just don't know what the what the light is going to be like until you're out there shooting. Uh, you can do some things to kind of project, uh, but often it's just kind of is what it is. But location and weather are things that are totally in your control. And again, as I look at a lot of of landscape photographers work, often it's, you know, man, that's an incredible sunset. But that is your backyard. Um, You know, it's or uh, that. Oh, that's an amazing sunset. But that's it's just a pond and a park. And it's just kind of doesn't it doesn't transport me to a new place where I really feel something interesting about the landscape and fall in love with the with the place. And, you know, when it comes down to it, landscape photography has a lot to do with the place. And so if if you find yourself, you know, it's great. You should, of course, go shoot even if it is just your backyard. Just go out and practice and whatever. But if you really want to take that portfolio to the next place, to the next level, sometimes it really is about the location. It's not all about the location. You can go there and take a bad photo. Uh, But boy, if you're traveling to great locations and you get lucky that day where you get that great light or that great weather, uh, it, it takes a seven photo and makes it a 10. Sometimes the location really does help a lot. Yep, I agree with that. So uh, the other one I'd like to, to mention is um, about submitting your images to, to magazines and, and publications. Um, what well, One that I will share that certainly helped me as a landscape photographer, uh, there's a magazine in the UK called Outdoor Photography Magazine, and it runs a monthly competition. It's called If You Do One Thing This Month. So they basically set a theme, um, and then you submit images based on those themes. So a lot of the magazines do that. They're always looking for submissions, always looking for, for new work, whether it's for the cover or, or for monthly competitions. But I find them a great way to inspire me to get out with the camera because I think a lot, a lot of the problem is we, we don't always feel encouraged to go out and, and shoot pictures and, and to go to these um, wonderful locations to try and chase the light. And I think sometimes having a, a, a bit of a competitive edge or, or uh, something you've got to work for um, can really help you get up there and go out there and also try new th- types of landscape photography, you know, whether it's longer exposures or, you know, um, abstract type um, images. Um, I think so, re- again, reading those magazines and, and finding out what they're looking for um, will actively encourage you to, to do something new and therefore improve your uh, landscape photography. Cool. So, so, Julian, have you submitted your work to magazines? Yeah, so I've, I've, I've submitted my work to um, mostly to Outdoor Photography Magazine. Um, I've been featured in their monthly competition four or five times now. I won it oh, a cool. month as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember the, the, the first time I got uh, a picture in the magazine, I, I was, <laughs> I was <laughs> over the moon. Um, and Because uh, at that point in my time, I wasn't sure, am I a good photographer? Are my images any good? I'll, I'll, I'll try and submit them anyway. And, and then as soon as you get your first one in, you're like, right, okay, I can, I can build in this. And it really encouraged me to, to keep going and, and to keep practicing and, and to keep trying out the new themes every month. Um, and they've also um, purchased some of my images for some of the articles, um, which, which I've written as well. So that kind of, just by doing that one thing, it's kind of snowballed into a bunch of other things as well, including starting to get some, some paid work. So yeah, it's, it's, it's worked well for me. Oh, awesome. I've probably read some of your articles then. I subscribe to that magazine. 
Oh, cool. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's the same. There's an outdoor photographer and there's an outdoor photography magazine, isn't it? I think. Oh, that's I've, complicated. I've I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> outdoor photography is a UK magazine. Um, oh, I, I think there's an outdoor photographer as well, isn't it? Yeah. I think, I, I think we get photographer here in the States. Yeah. We get is, photographer yeah. in the US. I've never heard of photography. Photography, yeah. I think it, well, it is a UK uh, based magazine. Very high quality magazine though. It's, um, it's, it's very good. Yeah, well, it sounds probably just like the one that we get here in the States. Yeah, it'll be quite similar. Yeah. All right. Well, my last one is um, to shoot in new and unfamiliar situations. Uh, they say that there's no growth that occurs in the comfort zone. So sometimes you have to go out of your comfort zone and just shoot something that's totally new and different. Um, whether that be if you're just a, a sunset photographer, maybe try to shoot sunrises or maybe try to shoot uh, a sunset in a location that you're not familiar with, go up into the mountains or go down at the lake or down at the beach or down by the river, uh, whatever is new and different to you. I know a lot of people, thousands of people probably went out this last week to go photograph the solar eclipse. Um, and that's something that I'd never done before, but uh, I, I read up on how to do it. Best advice to photograph the solar eclipse. I got some great photos. I printed them out. Um, I gave a, a copy to my dad to take to work, and I took a copy to work, and I already had three people buy uh, prints from me already. So Wow, that's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was. It, it's nice to have people say, hey, this is really cool. Can I buy a copy? Um, and that just really boosts your confidence in knowing that you can go to those new places, photograph a location, and that you have the skills, the ability, and the confidence to get a good picture out of that that people actually want to buy. Huh, that's really cool. Yeah, that, that's great. I, I, uh, I saw a lot of people's comments on, on photos after the eclipse saying, you know, can I buy this? And I thought, yeah, they're going to wake up tomorrow <laughs> and they're going to say the eclipse is over. Never mind. So that's cool. Yeah. That's, I'm glad to hear that people, you know, are actually willing to plunk down money. That's cool. Yes. Yeah, so, yes. Yeah, so talking of um, shooting sort of new and unfamiliar situations, I probably want to mention that um, going in a workshop, is a really good way of uh, improving your landscape photography as well. I think, um, you know, I live in a really nice part of the world. I've got so much on my own doorstep. Um, but that also gives you that also sometimes a bit too much of a comfort and you don't go anywhere new. So I think signing up for a workshop. So not only do you get to go to new places, but you also get tuition and you also meet other photographers. So workshops I've been on, I've learned not only from the choosers themselves, but the experience of, of the other photographers there just by standing beside other people chatting about photography and seeing how they can compose the scene. So you, you might be stood in almost exactly the same spot, but they will interpret and set up their camera sometimes in very different ways. And, and that interaction with other photographers, again, can help you realize how you might take pictures differently or how you might want to improve your photograph. So yeah, there's some workshops and um, obviously you've got the improved photography Retreat for those who are lucky enough to go uh, is another great um, place to go to, to learn and improve your photography. Oh, that's awesome. And while we're on the topic, uh, and before we get to the dark side of starting a photography business, I want to take a second and mention the Improved Photography Retreat. Uh, we are filling out our uh, our speakers list uh, for 2018, and I can't uh, make announcements yet, but I'm really happy with, uh, with some of the names we have coming online for the podcast, in addition to the awesome uh, Improved Photography podcasters, uh, you know, the gang's going to be there. Um, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm excited for that. If you haven't 
checked it out, you can go to improvephotography.com and just click retreat. It's at the very top of the page and has a lot of the details of, of what it's going to be like. It's going to be in Charleston, South Carolina, March 22 to 24. And the ticket cost is four hundred fifty nine dollars, and it's it's going to be awesome. We I mean we have great speakers for the for the in class section sessions, but you know one of the reasons we wanted to do this is because I went to too many photography conferences where you just kind of rot in a classroom all weekend and don't get out and shoot. And so we are uh, have a heavy emphasis on actually taking pictures uh, during during the retreat. There are some amazing locations to shoot um, in Charleston, especially some landscape stuff. Last year, we had a lot of a lot of portrait opportunities, which was awesome. Um, and this year, we want to have, uh, you know, lots of portrait opportunities as well. But we're adding a lot more on the landscape side uh, for this year uh, because of the just beautiful scenery out in South Carolina and some great architecture um, opportunities as well. So check it out, the Improved Photography Retreat. It's in March 2018 in Charleston, South Carolina. Come spend a week with us and uh, learn and and, uh, geek out with photography. All right, in the second half of the podcast this week, we are going to talk about the dark side of starting a photography business. And Kirk, you wrote this article on Improved Photography. Tell us kind of what you were thinking and the the genesis for this article. Uh, Clearly, it had been a poor day in the photography business when you (laughs) wrote this. (laughs) Um, Well, I had the idea for this article a long time ago, um, and it's actually been on the calendar for a while. And this, I just barely got around to actually writing it. Um, the reason that I wanted to do this is because I listened to a number of different photography business interview podcasts um, where they talk to just these amazing photographers that are just doing so many wonderful things with their business. And it was so easy for them to get started and everything just fell into place and, and the stars aligned and everything just worked out so fantastically for them. And that wasn't my experience when I started my business and, and I'm really still just starting my business. It's, it's never been that easy. There's never been this big break where I was able to quit my job and overnight and, and go do photography full time. And so I, I realized that there, it, there's probably more experiences like mine than there are experiences like those other people where they're able to just pick up a camera and it's like they're, they've got the Midas touch and everything they touch turns to gold and they're able to start this business with no effort or seemingly no effort. Um, so the reason that I wanted to write this was just to help people understand that starting a business can suck and there's a lot of things that can go wrong and there's a lot of setbacks, but when you adjust your expectations around those, then it's easier to push through some of the hard days, some of the hard weeks, the hard months and continue with your focus on your business and not just give up after three or four months because things aren't working out like you thought they would because you heard a thousand interviews where everybody said it was so easy. Yeah, I liked what you said. You said, um, it seems like, Let's see where I can find this here. You wrote it so well. Um, you said, uh, you know, you always hear from people who say, I shot my cousin's wedding and five of the bridesmaids <laughs> asked me to shoot their weddings. And then my wife and I quit our jobs and now we're shooting $20,000 weddings in Fiji. It's yeah. true though, right? Like, don't we yeah. hear that all the time? And you it just it sounds like, yeah, though, that's how photography business goes. And then you try to do it yourself and it doesn't quite turn out like that. Yeah, you shoot two $800 weddings and then you don't shoot another one for six months and you're like, oh, I must suck because I'm not in Fiji shooting right now like that other guy is. 
So, so what is it? Uh, how long should it take to start a photography business? How, how long? Uh, I, I mean, you don't want to keep doing the same thing forever. Uh, you want to grow and you want to get reached those goals. So you know, what's a reasonable amount of time? Well, that, uh, that's kind of a loaded question. Um, I I would be really hesitant to put down a solid answer like like two years. And if you haven't made it in two years, then you should you should give up. Um, I mentioned in the article that I honestly believe that opportunity will find you. Sometimes it finds people in six weeks, and sometimes it'll find people in a couple of years. Um, but the important thing is to just be persistent because opportunity is out there. And as long as you are working to prepare yourself for that opportunity, then you will be able to recognize it and take advantage of it. Um, like here's a here's a perfect example of being able to to take advantage of opportunity. Um, I w- during a slow part in in starting up my business, I didn't know what to do next, and so I thought, why don't I just give back to the community? And so I contacted my uh, local Habitat for Humanity because I thought, well, it's a to service space, the community organization around homes and I should photograph homes. So there might be some work there. Um, they said that they actually had uh, one of their warehouses that they needed photographed because it was like a, it was kind of like a, uh, like a, a used goods store that you can take your used construction. Oh yeah. Supply. Sure. Uh-huh. Um, and then people can, and it's open to the public and they can just go and buy it, but they needed new photos of it. And they said, do you want to do this? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And then they asked if I wanted to take photos of this, uh, this big fancy expensive gala that they had coming up because, um, they didn't have a photographer for that. And so I'd never shot events before, but I was like, you know what? Yeah, I'll do it. I can't promise that these photos will be amazing, but I'll give it my best shot. And then it was when I was at that gala that I had met another company that needed some photography work, some, um, some project work done uh, for a, a couple of projects that they had. And that was a paying gig. Um, and so because I thought of the opportunity, took advantage of it and reached out to people that was there, I was able to get uh, paid work from it. Huh. That's cool. Yeah, that's great. I, you know, you got to just keep poking at things until you get the next break and then work at the next one. But yeah, what I, so. what I often see from people is quitting right before that tipping point. Um, so I, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs, especially those who are starting online businesses. I have another website called Income School, and we have a a, a very active YouTube channel as of late. And so I do consultations with them regularly on uh, on those businesses. and And just this week, I I I worked with a guy who had been working on on an online business on a website for years, and just had not seen any success and he was so frustrated um, and he said, ah, oh, I don't know, I, I see videos and I see you're building websites and getting traffic to them and stuff and I just, I can't get that. I can't, I can't do that. Um, and and I w- went and looked at, at his business, at his, at his website and the problem was he was just doing shoddy work. He wasn't he wasn't really serving people that were that were coming there. The information wasn't good. It just wasn't done with any love. With any you know, he didn't really care about the people going to his website. He just wanted to push them over to Amazon as quickly as possible and get a commission from them. And it really it showed. And so. I, there are a lot of different things that can keep a business from growing, but if you're really, really, really doing a good job for your clients, uh, it, it's 
I, I think it's the best way to ensure that uh, that your opportunity is coming. If you're not doing a great job for your clients and your product and what they're actually getting and trying to serve them well, uh, then, you know, who knows? You might get lucky and, and you might not, but really serve those clients if you want to make sure that uh, opportunity is going to knock. Yeah, yeah I'll, uh, I'll probably, probably ask, um, you know, it's not, it's not about just being a good photographer, is it? You've, you've got to be good at business. You've got to be good at marketing. You, you've got to have... You're going to have many skills to make a successful photography business. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Being a photographer is easy compared to starting and running a business. Um, I mean, when I got started, I didn't even know what SEO was, search engine optimization. And that's something that you have to learn as a business person um, or hire it out to somebody else. But when you have no money, but lots of time, you have to figure it out on your own. And so there's tons of other parts of running a business that are crucial to being successful that are a lot more important than just going out and taking pictures. You have to know how to manage clients. You have to know how to be friendly. You have to know all sorts of marketing, different marketing techniques. Legal, accounting, all kinds of stuff. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. There's, there's tons and of stuff. And the technical, that, you know, some people, you know, they can do the photography and stuff, but the just getting stuff on the computers and, and, and getting the photos exported and backed up and stuff, the computer part is really intimidating for a lot of people. Everybody kind of has their weak area. Yep. Yeah. And if, um, if, if you don't know how to do something, you either have to hire it out or you have to figure it out. And for many people starting a business, they don't have the money to hire it out. But fortunately, you've got lots of time on your hands when you're starting a new business. And so you've got lots of time to watch YouTube videos, to read tutorials, to figure out how to do all this stuff. Um, that way you can get it done the way that you feel it should be done. And then when you get successful or when you become successful, then you can hire it out to somebody else while you focus on more of the creative side and really why you got into business in the first place. Yeah. And that is for me, that has been the most difficult thing of, about running my own business is just th that when there is a problem, like a real problem there's nobody to turn to. It's all on you. You are the only one who is ever going to fix this problem. And it, it's nice when people say, oh yeah, you you know, just delegate everything else and you just take the, the most interesting or fun part of the business or most important part of the business. And it rarely works like that. Employees work like employees. They will never work like the business owner. Mm -hmm. um, they don't care about the problem. They care that the problem is no longer in their court. Um, it, it, it will never be the same having an employee as the way that you work. And so when there is a big problem, it the buck stops with you. You're the only one there. You can't, uh, sometimes you can find somebody who can help you. Sometimes you won't be able to find the right help and it's, it's on your shoulders. And uh, so when the website is suddenly down, when your photographer, when your camera breaks in the middle of a wedding or whatever else, you need to be able to figure out all of the problems. There's nobody to turn to. That, yeah, that's tough. To, yeah, and you gotta be able to prioritize those problems as well because you're, going to have multiple problems things don't just happen every month or every now and again you'll likely have concurrent problems and being able to prioritize and manage those as well as manage your clients expectations and doing photography you've got to you got to be able to do all these things and all at once and decide which ones are the most critical to sort out straight away 
Yeah, sometimes I th- the thing that helps me the most is sometimes I'll just my wife uh, stays home with our kids and uh, and I work from home and so sometimes I'll just go out in the middle of the day and I'll just say, "Hey, I know I'm the one who needs to solve this problem, but can we just talk about this problem for 10 minutes?" Sometimes it's just helpful to have somebody to that you can at least just talk through the problem and sometimes you figure it out yourself, but you know, when you're just only in your in your own head, just not having somebody else's opinions and thoughts and uh, just being able to talk through a problem with other, you know, if you had employees or something, uh, it, it is difficult. And so just having somebody as a sounding board can really help, you know, even if it's not necessarily a, a mentor, I've never had a business mentor. Uh, I always hear, in fact, Kirk, that was something you mentioned in the article. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I've never had a business mentor. I hear all the time uh, people saying, oh yeah, I'm so glad I had this mentor really helped uh, with my business. And I was like, that would have been nice. That would have been nice, but I, I never had that and so uh and i don't have that and it uh it it can be difficult so at least having somebody you can talk through things with uh who kind of knows what's going on in the business if that's a spouse or a best friend or whatever uh, i i've found to be a, a suitable replacement at least and i've also heard that there's a, a perception i guess that when you're running a photography business that you're spending a lot of time actually doing photography i mean for your guys point of view how much time is it as a percentage, do you think you actually spend taking photographs um, against actually running your business? I, I don't know. It, it depends for me. It can really be as much as I want it to be. Uh, and sometimes it is. Uh, sometimes it's, it's you know, I'm going to go record videos. And when I'm recording videos, I mean, it's, it's going to be about half of the time in the field recording and half of the time editing it afterward. Uh, and other times I'm, you know, at home uh, working on blog posts and doing finance stuff and, and paying the bills and doing all that kind of stuff that has absolutely nothing to do with photography. And so, uh, you know, it's certainly less than I think most people would expect, but at least for me, I think it can, it can be whatever percentage I want that number to be. Well, another one that I have had uh, difficulty with is learning to take rejection. Uh, you know, and uh, improved photography is almost nine years old. I've been doing this for a long time, and I've uh, I have heard just about every rejection and and. Uh, troll remark you can hear online Uh, but still sometimes I find that it'll get me down and I have to just remind myself uh, to to keep going and keep plugging forward it happened just yesterday in fact I sent out an email to a hundred thousand people on the improved photography email list and I I I was announcing the app I had kind of waited until uh, the app is you know bug free and then I sent out the an email and it, it was amazing I mean, so many people were really nice and everything. I mean, you guys are awesome. Uh, But, you know, on the email list, we have some random people on there. And uh, you wouldn't believe how many people I heard saying, you hate Android. Why don't you even care about it? You know, it's just all kinds of stuff. And it's like, where... Did you know that I spent two years working on this and I have absolutely no expectation of making a profit from this? Like, this is a labor of love. Like, some people are just so entitled. Like, I can't believe you didn't make a free thing for me. You know, (laughs) just like (laughs) some people are so entitled that it will always surprise you when you get that negative criticism, whether it's a business thing or you're charging too much or you're, I don't like your photos or whatever, there will be rejections and you need to, well, what I find is to never just discount rejection. 
all rejection is something you can do better at. And so I, I try not to be too prideful and just say, this person's an idiot because uh, I don't really think that's helpful. I think you really need to take that rejection and say, you know, where's this coming from? How can I avoid this next time? How can I better serve this person? Even if they're being kind of a jerk, uh, you still want to look for what you can do to improve because, uh, you know, maybe there were a hundred other people who maybe weren't a jerk about it, but they thought it. And so uh, it's easy to just say, you know, learn how to just blow past the rejection and, and to become thick skinned. But um, I've actually found a better path by being willing to humble myself a little bit and see, okay, you know, what's behind this and how can I learn from it? Yeah. Learning from rejection is probably the hardest thing because you think you're right and you want to be right so badly that when you get in an argument with somebody, the first reaction that you have is, wow, that guy's a jerk. He doesn't have any idea what goes on to make this business successful or to shoot photos or to do whatever. But then when you take maybe four or five, six hours, and then you look back and you start to examine, okay, well, maybe I could have said this differently, or maybe I could have done this differently, Mm -hmm. or maybe I could have responded in this way. Um, That's the hardest thing to do is to learn from that rejection or to learn from the mistakes that you made and then just be better in the future so that you don't make that same mistake again, or you don't have that same argument again. Yeah, and sometimes it's, it's important to try and take um, what is a bad situation and turn it into a positive situation as well. I recently had a, an issue with um, some of the photographs that have been taken at a gig where uh, the band manager had taken the, the photographs, used them in the advertising the, a future tour, then emailed me and asked if it was okay after he had published the pictures. So I kind of sort of sat there for a while typing emails, deleting it, uh-huh. again and decide, trying to decide whether to be angry you stole my pictures uh, man or to try and turn that into a positive and, and what I did do is I found out they were touring later but they were supporting a bigger band so I managed to arrange um, access to that, that bigger gig so sometimes you you kind of have to bury the anger and, and, and try and turn what is a negative sometimes into a positive yeah and and for me one thing that has helped is the very first thing to outsource in a business, I believe, is the customer service. Usually it's the accounting <laughs> that people are tired of doing the books. For me, the very first thing to outsource is customer service because you. I find that I can do a better job with that if I'm not the first line of defense um, in dealing with an angry customer. Uh, but that, you know, that can go to a person who's a little bit more disconnected from the business. And then it filters back to me in a much more uh, sanitary way. Instead of you're an idiot, I can't believe you did this. It's like, hey, maybe we should, you know, make this one change in, in the business, you know, because it's it's filtered through somebody. And I found that that's a, a helpful way to not get down, but still make sure that feedback always gets to you so you can improve. Yep. Well, in every episode, we like to share the doodads of the week with you. And mine is not a suggestion. It is a question. Uh, Last time we had you on the podcast, Kirk, we talked about the Rhino slider and you were buying it. And Mm -hmm. I am just, I've been hovering over the buy button on this thing for months now. And so I'm curious to see uh, what you think of it. But I want to kind of explain what it is for those who don't know. Uh, you know, video videographers use this. It's a rail system and your camera slides along it to get smooth motion. Uh, but photographers also use it for time lapse so that your camera is moving just a tiny little bit between each picture. And then over the course of hours, you can create or minutes, you could create a, a time lapse with some motion and sliding uh, to the photo. So I've 
really been wanting to get into one of these, but they are expensive. You know, you're going to spend two grand if you get all the accessories and stuff. And so should I spend my money? What do you think? Um, I think it really depends on what you're going to use it for. Um, if you want to do, if you want to start doing a lot of that time-lapse photography stuff, then it works really well for that. Uh, if you do a lot of YouTube videos um, and it's just like, like interview videos, uh, or just like floating head kind of videos. I think it works really well for that. Um, for my business, I try to put out a, a vlog, a vlog video uh, every couple of weeks, and it works really well for that because it makes more of an interesting video feed than just a stationary camera. Because I can have it tracking on the on the on the track on the rail, um, so it just looks nicer. But yeah, it is really expensive, and unless you know what you're going to use it for then i don't know i can't i i can't in good conscience recommend that people go out and buy it unless they have a use case for it already it's like it's like going out and buying uh like uh, an inspire 2 drone just because it's cool not because you're going to use it okay so so but you like the functionality of it you're just saying oh, you know don't yeah. get this for general photography unless you're going to be doing a lot of it Oh, uh, it would be worthless for general photography. Um, yeah, it's it's strictly for video, and so if you're not doing video work or time then, lapse, yeah, or time lapse, then yeah, don't don't get it. But yeah, if you're doing if you're doing a lot of interviews, uh, if you're doing a lot of like YouTube vlogging kind of stuff, uh, it works really well for that, and it's really great. Even if you do like like product uh, product videos, uh, there's a lot of really good uses for it as well. But again, it's so expensive. It's it it tops the the charts at about $1,500. Ouch. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really expensive. And if you're not going to use it, then I would encourage you not to buy it. And even if you want to get started with just being, being familiar with a rail system, you can buy a carbon fiber rail on Amazon for a hundred bucks. And that's how I got started. And that's how I started to learn all of the different things you can do with them. And then I knew I needed more. I needed more capability than just what the stationary rail could do. And that's why I bought the Rhino. See, that's where I am. I've, I've owned sliders in the past and uh, you really can do a lot just with a hundred dollar slider. Um, but I'm wanting to get more into the advanced time-lapse and there are so many like DIY inexpensive solutions for 150 bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've really considered that, but I don't want to do the same thing with this that I've done with, you know, tripods or, or cheap soft boxes on Amazon where you buy one and you buy a little better one, then a little bit better one. <laughs> and then you finally buy the good one. I'd rather just buy this once and get an awesome one. So is this the awesome one? This is this is hands down the best. This is the this is the Bentley of of motorized sliders. Oh, sorry, you you're, you're hurting my ears. You mean the Tesla, right? <laughs> the, the Tesla. Sorry, it's, <laughs> there's nothing I, wrong with the Bentley. <laughs> <laughs> so, so is, is, is this a, is it portable? I mean, as, from a landscape photography point of view, if you're going to do um, time lapses out in the field, is, is it something that can fit in a, a, in a backpack? Uh, no. Um, so it comes with its own, um, its own, uh, bag that you can shove everything in. Um, but it depends on the size of your rail. Um, if you have a 24 inch rail, then it's a little bit bigger than 24 inches. But if you go up to the 42 inch rail, then it's going to be a little bit bigger than 42 inches. Yeah. And you, you can't collapse the rails because that would defeat the smooth, 
functionality of the system. Um, but this, it's just all part of the game. Um, I, I hear photographers complaining that they want to go backpack into the middle of nowhere and take this beautiful photo of this mountain and this lake, but their camera gear is too heavy and they don't want to do it. You know, that's just part of the game. I mean, heavy camera gear is just comes with the territory. And so if you're willing to throw this thing on your back and, and go out and shoot photos, then you're going to do it regardless of size or weight. Yeah, that's true. I, and, you know, that's that's improving with each year in photography is the weight and the size of all gear. Uh, it's it's getting lighter and it's getting smaller. Uh, but right now there are, I mean, I can't carry all of my gear when I want to go. I mean, if I'm going to carry all the video gear, uh, you know, sliders and and lights and stuff, that's a whole bag. And if I want to carry the drone gear, that's a whole bag. And if I want to carry the still photo gear, that's another whole bag. Uh, You you can't bring all three (laughs) a lot of times when you're going to some location. So you got to pick and choose. But uh, all right. I think you may have convinced me. I think you might (laughs) have just spent some of my money. Uh So the reason that I got it was because I had an idea to do this real estate video um, that is impossible to do any other way that I know of. Um, And so I wanted to fade characters in and out of a scene. um, And the only way that I knew how to do this was with the slider. Um, And so that's why I bought it. Um, I I did this shoot for a, a real estate agent who said she wanted a different kind of video. Uh, we put this together. She put it on Facebook and it, it blew up on Facebook. Every, every agent in her, her office was asking about it. Everybody on Facebook was saying it was the most engaging video they've ever seen. They, they've never seen a real estate video like that before. So it, what was it that was so unique? Just like, um, so when you're talking about fading people in and out, so let me set up the scene. We're like in the kitchen, the camera is starting to slide to the right physically. The camera is physically moving. Uh-huh. Um, and then, and then you'll see like just a fade in of a mom and a kid, you know, making cookie dough in the kitchen there. Yep. So you get to see the room and pay attention to it. And then you see mom and yeah. kid making cookies to make it feel lived in and kind of imagine yourself there. Yeah. And so the trick to this is the background needs to stay the same. Um, So if you were just to use like a gimbal to do this, there's no way you could guarantee that the background would stay the same. That would, the background would stay stationary in order for this to feel really slick and high end. The, the, the mom and the kid have to fade in while everything else stays exactly the same. And I didn't know any other way to do this. I'm sure there's probably 20 different ways to do it, but this was, the the only way that I could figure out how to do it and so that's why I bought the Rhino right because um, if you were if it were just sitting still if the camera were still this is easy just do a yeah. video without them there and a video with them there and then mask them sure. in but yeah. that's but the camera's moving and so this yeah. is a lot harder yeah you don't want to take the, the whole purpose of video is to show movement and so you're not going to take video with it on a tripod because I mean that's not a video that's just a picture um and one of the other reasons that I bought the Rhino for this is because it's got the, um, it's got this arc, they call it the arc motion. And it's a little, it's like a, a disc that the camera actually sits on. And then that rotates as well. Um, that can all be programmed with the motion of the slider. So it will rotate and you can repeat those moves. Um, so you can set up this, this rotational shot um, in like an empty kitchen and then reset it and then put the mom and the kid there and then do that same shot. So even though you're doing these complex camera movements, everything in the background is going to stay the same, but the mom and the kid are going to fade in and it just looks really slick. That's cool. 
All right. Well, that's what I have for my doodad. What do you guys have? <laughs> um, well, I've got one that's probably going to, um, it's not going to be within many people's budgets, but it's the Nikon D850 that oh, just that recently awesome. announced. I am super pumped about this camera. Um, I've been wanting to upgrade for my D750 for a while now. Um, I think everyone had anticipated this camera was going to be announced uh, last year, um, but it's finally finally been announced. I'm within minutes of uh, my camera retailer sending me an email saying, "Would you like to buy one?" I was uh, clicking buy quicker than a quicker than I could click. So I'm really excited about this camera. Um, it seems that the buzz about the camera is is, is very good as well. Um, they're calling it the uh, it'll do all things well. So as a landscape photographer. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to the differences between that and the D750 that I've got at the moment, so the lower base ISO um, and other other things as well. When I shoot my music photography, so I've got the other end of the, the spectrum there with a um, higher ISO as well, um, and plus a f- few other bits and pieces. So um, I'm hopeful that this is going to arrive on my doorstep next week on the 7th or the 8th. I think they're coming out. Um, but yeah, so I appreciate this not the cheapest of doodads to start things off with, but um, I think this is going to be an absolutely amazing camera. Um, so yeah, that's my doodad of the week. Oh, that's awesome. I, I think a lot of you probably read the the article I wrote on improved photography comparing the D850 to the uh, 5D Mark IV, just on the specs, of course. And we haven't, you know, nobody has their hands on the D850. Um, and so... It, it's not even close. There, there isn't hardly one single spec where you say, "Oh, this is a reason that the, the Canon is better." The Nikon D850 just absolutely walloped the the 5D Mark IV. I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing camera, and it uh, has shown that Canon are lacking a bit, particularly in the the video aspect of stuff. But I mean, I don't know. Is is it enough to make people that are in the Canon system? jump to the d850 I, I, I don't know i don't know if it's that that compelling because it's always a, it's a bit of an arms race with, with cameras isn't it sure um you know cat cannon will come out with a, another one eventually that will be better than the, the d850 but i think if you're already in the in the nikon system like i am with the with i've got a lot of fx glass and i've already got the d750 it's a natural progression for me it's a bit of a no-brainer so yeah that, and that's why I, i've ended up buying it yeah, that's true. I, I mean, I would hope nobody's going to just switch cameras just on a whim because this one, this one model happens to be better. Uh, but the question is, what happens when that continues over a few models, and then people start say, okay, you know, let's see. What, especially me because I switch all the time. Uh, people start say, okay, what, what can we do uh, to, yeah, to make a yeah, move? Yeah, I mean, I've I've looked at switching before um, before the D850 announcement came out. I obviously got quite worried by the, the new Sony A9 camera and I kind of got excited about that. But I mean, I looked at the cost of, of replacing and, and replacing all the glass with the same glass that I've got just now and it was just prohibitively expensive. But not exp- all that money didn't justify what I would get. I mean, even though it's a mirrorless system and you've got lots of other bells and whistles that come along with that, I just couldn't justify the cost. Um, whereas obviously sticking with the same ecosystem and, and, and Nikon is a, is a bit easier to swallow. For sure, yeah, and I, I always try to really carefully monitor the value of my stuff. Um, I 
I don't think I've ever switched and spent a significant amount of money uh, just because I'm always kind of monitoring the the cost of what things are, what they'll sell for used and if I can make it happen, you know, uh, but, but, you know, it's really more of a hobby for me. I just like the gear. It's fun. <laughs> I want to switch and kind of try different things to be able to talk about different things on the podcast and on the website. Obviously, this is not going to suddenly improve your photography. Uh, for me, it's just kind of fun. I like to try the new tech. Yeah, it is good fun getting a new camera and it can excite your photography and encourage you to get out um, more with, with, a, with a new new bit of gear. I mean, I, I'm trading in my, my D750, so I, I was preempting the announcements. So I already got a good trade-in value for mine as well. So Smart. I think that's another important thing. If you buy new gear, there is an advantage to getting it quite soon on in, in its life cycle that, that whatever model you're trading in, its value will be typically a little bit higher at the beginning of, of the cycle of the, of the new camera. So that's really helped me offset quite a chunk of that, that cost of that new camera. Cool. And Kirk, what do you have? All right. Well, since you guys uh, are launching super expensive doodads uh, over <laughs> there, <airways>, expensive. <laughs> I'm going to save uh, the, uh, the listeners a little bit of money. Um, I've got, this is uh, something that I used for when I shot the solar eclipse. Um, this is a Daystar solar filter um, and it is a universal solar filter that comes in a cardboard uh, like a cardboard cutout, uh, or, or it's it's more like paper boards, um, just kind of some thick paper. But anyway, so you fold it together, and then it makes a little cap that you put on the end of your lens um, instead of instead of taping the filter on. That way, once the once the solar eclipse reaches totality, you can just pop it off real quick, take pictures of the totality, and then put it back on. Um, there's no tape or anything to worry about. This worked amazingly well when I was shooting. The, so, uh, the, the solar eclipse. And so I would recommend this to anybody. It comes in a, a variety of different sizes from like 10 to $25. Um, and so it's really cheap. It's really high quality. Uh, and I actually got a lot of compliments and questions from people walking around asking what was that thing that I had on the end of my camera. Um, and it, uh, yeah, it's just really slick and you've got seven years to buy one before the next eclipse happens. All right. <laughs> well, uh, Kirk and Julian, thank you guys for taking the time to be on the podcast. Always enjoy reading your articles on improvedphotography.com. And listeners, we will see you in another seven days. 